I don't know what's going on there. I can't say for certain what is happening. What I'm saying is that, so, so like to frame this whole issue, right? Yeah. There is in 2018, um, Mattis, the, the secretary of defense came out with his national security strategy. And in that national security strategy, he outlined what Obama kind of tried to do in his term. I think it was in 2015, this pivot to Asia, right? And in 2018, when, when um, they came out with this national security strategy, they outlined what they called uh, great, renewed great power competition. And all of a sudden, all of the policy wonks in D.C. globbed onto this term because they think in these grand narratives, like there's some masters on a chessboard and they're not dealing with human lives or anything like that. So they came out with this grand strategy and in it, they described that the 21st century is going to be defined by a Cold War struggle between the United States and China. And that has shaped everything since then. Um, it's a bit more complicated than this, but part of the reason why we're scaling things down in the Middle East is to free up resources to encircle Russia and China. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Trash Talks. Joining me this week, my guest, Patrick McFarlane of the uh, Liberty Weekly podcast, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and uh, the Libertarian Institute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You work with the Libertarian. Well, actually, here, uh, I don't know you well enough. Help, uh, <laughs> help. <laughs> Why don't you give uh, all your full titles and everything you're doing with a little description about yourself. Tell the audience. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's usually what I do on my show because I, I've seen so many people like mess up an introduction for someone else and it just sets everything up on like this awkward tone. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a practicing attorney. I've been doing the Liberty Weekly podcast for like four years now. I started in law school. Um, I've been, I've covered a lot of topics like libertarian legal theory. Uh, my recent obsession has kind of been like foreign policy. Uh, but I've covered like a, a wide range of topics, you know, with a lot of guests on my show. And what I've trying to be like trying to be doing lately is to come out with like some really well researched and documented stuff, uh, like documentaries and you know like video stuff, but also articles and uh, just doing those deep dives because I think that's something that's really kind of lacking in in like the libertarian scene because you'll have people who do articles. Um, and you'll have people who do interviews, but you don't have a lot of people who do like video documentary kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you have the whole shit posting side of things, which does get a lot yeah. of attention, but we, we need more than memes sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, no, it's, uh, it, it's great what you're doing. Actually, speaking of, uh, you making the documentaries, that's, that's what got my attention and what's been getting you a lot more attention. Uh, cause you've had a recently a, uh, pretty hot take on some, uh, uh, mainstream, uh, I, I don't know what to call it. So, some, of, uh, some of the mainstream reporting on a certain subject. You want to uh, tease that out a little? Yeah, I've, I've certainly pissed some people off. Um, and that wasn't really my intention. You know, I, 
anyways, what really happened is that I, w- I was watching Tim Pool, and I've watched Tim Pool for years. I remember watching him like at the height of the culture war in 2015 or 2016, when mm-hmm. like he was going to all of these like alt-right versus Antifa stuff. And I just noticed like over the years that, you know, his popularity has gotten larger and larger. And I think that's for a reason, you know, like he, he does hard work. Uh, I really was a big fan for a long time. He did a lot of like put himself in danger to get the scoop on things. And that's something I can certainly respect. Absolutely. And he started doing this uh, Tim cast IRL show and all of a sudden, you know, he would do these bits on his Tim cast channel where he would do like read the news and give his opinions on it. And it can kind of gradually grew from there. And all of a sudden, like he got a lot more bombastic and he got a lot more like clickbaity with his, his headlines and with his thumbnails and things kind of progressed. And he, he was good on a lot of issues, good on a lot of libertarian issues and important ones at that. Then he started Timcast IRL and it wasn't until like, over Christmas that I really was watching it. And I, at the time I was working on a documentary about lies and war propaganda and atrocity propaganda in World War One. And at the same time that I'm working on this documentary and researching that, I'm reading about like uh, Arthur Ponsonby put out this piece called Falsehood in Wartime. And he was an MP in the British Parliament during World War One. And after the war, he put out this piece called Falsehood in Wartime, where he went through every single one of the major lies and propaganda that was told during World War I that was uh, demonstrably false. And a lot of them sounded a lot like what Tim Poole was talking about when he was covering China. And so like Ponsonby did these things like he was talking about uh, the Belgian baby without hands. And um, there was this myth that was going around during World War I that when the Germans went through Belgium, they found all the little kids and they chopped all their hands off and that there were like thousands of children walking around Europe without any hands. This was real. This was reported in the London Times. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. And I mean, it was used to justify support for the war. Another one was um, the like the raping of nurses. All of these British nurses were going over to to Europe and these Belgian nurses and there was stories going around about atrocities where uh, the Germans would would rape a nurse and they would cut her breasts off and they would torture and mutilate her. Okay, um, that got a that got a lot um, got a lot more serious real quick. I mean, not to say you know, obviously rape serious, but um, yeah, that's an escalation. That's a, that's a much, yeah. that's a much crazier thing. Uh, Cause I was going to say, I'm like, well, we all do know. I mean, pretty, there's an odd thing that goes on um, with war where actually, I think I heard this on your show. The guy was just talking about this was, uh, Oh yeah. 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 He was talking about uh, the rape and war aspect. It's, it's uh, right. It's an odd phenomenon, but it, uh, it seems to always come with it. But um, yeah, I mean, more than anything, what comes with every war is dehumanizing the enemy. Right. Yeah. And like you'd see it with all the posters, like the germ Huns, you know, and all of these like posters that look like the the Germans are apes, you know, or something like that, or they're literal like vermin or lice. And so so that was going on. And another thing that uh, was really big, and this was um, the German corpse factory, and this was a well publicized rumor that said basically, oh, we have eyewitness reports that the Germans have corpse factories where they 
take the corpses of their dead soldiers and dead civilians on the field. They bundle them up with barbed wire. They put them on trains and they bring them back to these factories where they boil them down and convert their bodies and fat to glycerin. And they use that to create munitions with. (laughs) And this was reported in the London Times. Eyewitness reports of this. So you, you see... Well, and the reason I'm saying this is, you know, I'm I'm sure that there were atro- of course there were atrocities that Absolutely. took place during World War One. I. I mean, World War One itself was an atrocity that mm-hmm. never should have happened. And I'm I'm sitting here and I'm I'm researching this documentary and I hear Tim Pool has China Uncensored on his podcast, and they're talking about organ harvesting, and they're saying that there's this minority in the Xinjiang region of Western China called the Uyghurs, and that these Uyghurs are being rounded up and they're being put in concentration camps where they are being um, tortured. uh, And I don't know if they make the claim that they're being exterminated, although they they call it a genocide openly. Well, with organ harvesting, which they're suggesting, you you got to be dead for that. (laughs) Right. Well, and they would say that this is occurring on an industrial scale. And Tim Pool had China uncensored on saying that this is the way that China pays for its healthcare system, is that they round up all these Uyghurs, they harvest their organs, and they sell the organs to the highest bidder, or or you know that like the so one of the China uncensored producers was saying that there is a database of all the people who are in these camps, and when someone in the upper class in China um, needs an organ. They do like a, a blood match throughout all the camp system. And then that person is promptly harvested from and the organ is shipped off. And so I was skeptical, you know, and I know I was just suspicious of the fact that Tim Pool would be covering China. He would literally mention it at any opportunity that he could, even when it didn't seem really at all related to the subject that he was covering. And so I, I thought, hey, I'll look into this. You know, I just want to look into this and see what's really going on here. And um, that's when I I found, I don't know how I found it, but I found Max Blumenthal and Gareth Porter's reporting on this. And I think Scott Horton interviewed Gareth Porter about this piece, talking about this German sociologist named Adrian Zenz. And Adrian Zenz is, uh, you know, he's a Christian fundamentalist. He has stated that he feels like he's led by God to expose the Chinese Communist Party, um, which is fine. I don't care that he's a Christian, but when he states exactly what his bias is and his motivations are, I think you got to look into, you know, what exactly he's saying. So he was widely publicized in all the mainstream media articles with this piece um, that came out in June 2020, I believe. Um And in it, he was saying basically that the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. And to evidence that, he pointed demographic genocide mostly, but to evidence that, he pointed to a slowing down in the population growth rates among the Uyghur Muslims. So it's not that Uyghurs were disappearing. It's that their growth rate, the rate that the population was growing, was slowing down. Now, you're on a roll here, and there was one thing I wanted to do yeah, before I'm we sorry. got into this. No, 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 no. I love it. No, I love how, how, how uh, readily available the information is for you. But um, just real quick, we just wanted, I wanted to preface this whole thing with, um, so people are wildly, like you're saying, there's, there's some accusations on the table, and they might not have that much evidence to back them up. But you yourself, never been to China, you're just looking at right. these things, so take all this with 
somewhat of a grain of salt. I I, I think uh, I think Pat's here made it made a decent case to, of why to be skeptical. But essentially, that's all you're saying. You're not denying this like some people immediately want to push it towards like, you know, like acting like you're denying the Holocaust. It's hey, let's find out if it's a Holocaust first. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what's going on there. I can't say for certain what is happening. What I'm saying is that so so like to frame this whole issue, right, there is in 2018, um, Mattis, the the Secretary of Defense, came out with his national security strategy. And in that national security strategy, he outlined what Obama kind of tried to do in his term. I think it was in 2015 this pivot to Asia, right? And in 2018, when when um, they came out with this national security strategy, they outlined what they called uh, great renewed great power competition. And all of a sudden, all of the policy wonks in DC globbed onto this term because they think in these grand narratives, like there's some masters on a chessboard and they're not dealing with human lives or anything like that. So they came out with this grand strategy And in it, they described that the 21st century is going to be defined by a Cold War struggle between the United States and China. And that has shaped everything since then. Um, It's a bit more complicated than this, but part of the reason why we're scaling things down in the Middle East is to free up resources to encircle Russia and China with. Yeah, and, and, and the same thing with uh, like that, that that's been what I've been saying this whole time, like no good deed style. Like they they of course they're pulling out, but that's because they need things. And I also I've also kind of been getting an idea in my head that it's going to go towards South America too. Seems like there's uh some pushes at that. I uh, think there I think Africa more than anything too. Okay. Um, but but that's just what I'm hearing, what yeah. I've read. I was just thinking um, with like the Cuba and the Haiti stuff. I'm like, like those have been right. like right in my face, you know, like it's right. not South America. It's like the Caribbean or whatever, but you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. I, I don't think you're wrong. And we, I, Haiti too. We can talk about that. We'll get into all of it, man. I got sure. time. <laughs> but first off, China. Yeah. Well, so, so I, I don't know what's going on there, um, but I'm viewing everything in this declared cold war against China. And you see it on multiple fronts. Uh, especially, you know, with this the Uyghur situation, and we can get into some of the State Department motivations behind in the State Department involvement with the Uyghurs for a long time, and the the fact that the the state the U.S. State Department has used the Uyghurs as terrorists as proxy terrorists for decades, and so when you when you start to view who could benefit from this narrative. And especially the fact that it's the entire mainstream media that is pushing this and they're pushing it ad nauseum. And so the people that have pushed have pretty vehemently criticized me for this. One uniting factor about them is that they never address the tangible points that I'm making, or if they do, um, it's, it's not quite right. It's very clear that they haven't actually like gone through and read all the source material. And I'm not saying that to be like a dick or anything. It's just like, I don't know how to engage with you on this if you just if you don't know the background facts of what's going on. And um, I don't know what else to say. And so if you go through all that, I, I don't know who could sit here and honestly believe the BBC and take them at face value. And I'm not saying that 
you know, you should always disbelieve the BBC. I'm just saying that you shouldn't believe them and take everything they say as granted. Yeah, don't put blind trust in corporate media or, I mean, in, in like, their, well, yeah. I mean, they feed right into the corporate media, but they're, uh, you know, private media or I mean, not public media. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, but uh, don't buy any of it. Don't, you know, don't, don't buy us just blindly. Go do your own research, yeah. like seriously. And, but uh, yeah, go ahead. You, you could watch my documentary. Everything that I show in the documentary is linked in my article. And that'll be linked media. in the bio. Okay. Independent media parrots questionable Uyghur genocide claims. So, so everything that I cite is sourced right there. There's like 50 or 60 links in that, in that article that I would encourage everyone to read and come up with your own opinion. There's oh. entire like reports that these BBC mainstream media articles cite from the think tanks in Washington, DC, saying that this is a genocide. But if you actually read the reports and like follow their sources, uh, you'll find that like, so this New Lines Institute report, one of, one of the reports, I think, yeah, it's the New Lines. Yeah, the New Lines report says basically estimates that there are like 2 million people in these camps. And their source for that statistic is that they went to eight villages in Xinjiang and they asked eight people how many people were missing from the village. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's when you read things like that, that, uh, it really makes your case look a lot stronger than, uh, places that are literally citing stuff that's just logistically ridiculous, like organ harvesting on a high scale. I mean, I'll give them credit where credit's due. They made a really uh, colorful painting with the whole, uh, oh, they're taking their blood and they got the whole system. I mean, right. you know, you put me in the, you put me in the movie right there. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a little more believable that someone's telling a lie for profit rather than uh, someone's harvesting the organs of thousands for a profit. I don't know. Right. And I'm not even saying that organ harvesting hasn't happened in China. You know, we don't know one hundred percent anything. Like we yeah, haven't been there, haven't been able to identify, but it just seems unlikely. Right. And I, I can't um and then one thing that people will say is, Oh, well, you know, imagine trusting anything the Chinese Communist Party says. You know, and and I get it. You know, I get it. Imagine trusting anything the CIA says. Imagine trusting anything that Mike Pompeo says. So like what you're doing here is that you actually have to put on a thinking cap and look at the evidence yourself. You can't take anything the Chinese Communist Party says at its word, and you can't take anything that the U.S. State Department says at its word. That's just the way it is. So you actually have to like invest time and actually like study this stuff. And, and if anyone does that and has actual real criticism based on you know the arguments I'm making, then that's great. Let me know. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, really one of the things that drew me towards, uh, your argument, cause I've, I've heard similar arguments from other people, but they tend to be people who are aligned with China's thinking, you know, they, it, it's people who right. also praise China quite a bit. I, I mean, I, I have friends who, uh, you know, think they're the greatest country on earth and that, uh, the U S is just this big obstacle who needs to get out of the way. But, um, and uh, I mean, the U.S. is a big obstacle, but uh, I don't know if I want to go to China, but <laughs> it's an obstacle I want to overcome for different reasons. But um, really, you're just coming from where you're from. I mean, you've already mentioned uh, the Libertarian Institute. So anyone from that. But for those of you who are a little looser on on the politics here. 
this guy's essentially the polar opposite of China politics, like spectrum wise. Like yeah, yeah. this is this is somebody who has every reason, just like myself, who has reported on this in the past. Oh yeah, China bad? Yeah, China bad. Like, of course, it's easy to do. But um you have you have really no interest in well, I mean, your interest is obviously you don't want to see a uh, hot proxy war type situation with China. We already got enough of that going on in the world. Um, so, yeah, you have some investment in it, but not in defending China, just in actually right. trying to be skeptical, come to the tr uh, come to uh, possibly a clearer truth, you know? In, so, and this is the part where I criticize China, because what it looks like to me, the most probable explanation is and what they actually actively say that they're doing is that they do have facilities they do have re-education facilities um they they frame it as combating terrorism and what they see is they see it as being like a welfare type thing is that what we're going to do is we're going to create all these facilities we're going to take all these rural uyghur muslims we're going to give them job training we're going to pay them that's what china says Okay, that's what they say. Uh, we're going to pay them. We're going to give them these skills. We're going to send them back home. That's what they say, right? And economically, that would make the most sense. Like they're trying to turn rural uh, farmers into um, kind of like factory workers or whatever. They're, they're trying to get them to do that. So economically, what they're saying kind of lines a lot more up with, I guess, what would make economical sense for them. Right. I mean, so... I mean, to put it in really stark and terse terms, yeah. the, the Uyghurs are worth much more to the Chinese than alive than dead. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. That being said, too, another big thing is like, oh, well, uh, they're using them for slave labor. You know, the, there's this big claim. And a lot of it centers around cotton, you know. So you'll mm -hmm. see in like Teen Vogue, we'll put up this like boycott and divest story about, you know, cotton picking in Xinjiang. Well, like, 87% of the cotton picked in Xinjiang is done with machines. Like this is not the 1800s. I mean, they, they have tractors and stuff, right? And, and what I'm citing on this is that there was a think tank. I'll send you the link to this, but there was a think tank that put out a skeptical report uh, from Italy. And it was like one of the major think tank reports that was skeptical of the, the Uyghur genocide claim. And my, um, my critique of it is that it takes the Chinese Communist Party too much at their word. Um, yeah, which so. we're, we're here to be skeptical, not to just take people at their word. So, yeah, that's right. going to be that's going to be the other side, blindly following the because uh, that, that, like I said, that's who I get a lot of response from is people who like everything China says. And right. uh, you get pushback from almost everywhere else. Like everybody has their own little reason why they'd love to believe this. And I, I mean, I did, too. But, uh, because it's yeah. a safe position to take. It really is. You know. <laughs> you know what? Like, What's safer, though, if this is really, uh, you said this got you a little traction, man. Hot takes are the way to go. That's safe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, and I mean, it's not like I'm going on the Today Show because I did this documentary or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, not I mean, that we're, safe. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about, like, I mean, I've had an uptick in traffic. I mean, I... Uh, I mean, certainly clickbait is is a motivator for people. I'm not going to deny that. I like it when people watch my videos. You know, I don't I, I would do this if no one watched my videos, but it, like I wouldn't enjoy it as much. It's like who wants to work 20 hours a week for something that no one consumes, you know? So, I mean, I certainly do enjoy it. I'm not going to pretend I don't, but um, that's not 
there's not a lot of it, you know, like that. And it's not the reason why I do this. I am seriously concerned about a war with China. Absolutely. Seriously concerned about it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, I I mean, it's, it's why that's the other thing I was thinking though. I was thinking this on the way over here though, of how China fit my worldview, but now your argument fits closer to my worldview. So I'm immediately receptive to it for those who this doesn't fit their worldview. Uh, they're going to come at this information very, with a very hostile attitude and stuff. Like, I mean, especially like if you're taking it to heart in like the sense that like, I mean, you're, you're like, Hey, you're, you're on your mining. What could be slavery? What could be a Holocaust? Like, like those, if you're coming at it with that emotional reaction, yeah, it's, it's going to be really hard to uh, consider the other side. But um, well, let, me, yeah. let me say this, uh, not before I forget. Absolutely. So a fundamental tenant of our Western system of law and justice is innocent until proven guilty. So the burden of proof is not on me to prove this isn't happening. Okay. The burden of proof is on the people accusing the Chinese Communist Party of doing this. Now, now we're talking about being able to say something for certain. And at least the New Lines Institute piece tries to frame things in like, okay, these are the elements of genocide according to the, you know, not the the genocide convention of 1948. And we think that it fits element one, two, three, and four, you know, and we think we can prove this with clear and convincing evidence. So they actually try to do that. Um, the problem is, is that their evidence lacks credibility. Um, and I don't think it meets that burden, but let's not, let's not get confused here. This is the, the burden of proof is on the people saying that genocide is happening and I don't have to prove anything for certain. All I have to do is make sure that the evidence they presented doesn't meet a certain threshold. And I guess for every person, the, the burden of the threshold of evidence in their own mind is whatever they set it to be. For some people, it's just, oh, I can see that picture and I can see these Google Earth images and say that genocide is happening for sure. And I know it. Yeah. And, and essentially, I mean, with the whole, uh, with, what it, with what it could be uh, down to uh, the China's like explanation, it's already disgusting what's going on. Like, they're taking people oh, yeah, yeah. based specifically on their culture. They're rounding them up and they're trying to beat that culture out of them. Like, even if that's exactly what, I mean, that's exactly what they say it is to an extent. That's already bad enough. Like, that's already a reason to not like China over that. Uh, to, uh, it's, um, right. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know that they're rounding them up. I don't know that they're saying that, but they certainly, it, it's unclear to me it appears from what China says that these people are being going there voluntarily. There are people who are being arrested for terrorist activities who are being put in these facilities. So it's on multiple levels, you know, it's complicated. So there's evidence of of all of those things, you know, and, but you're right. It it is. I mean, if they are taking people and putting them in educate, okay, let's, let's put it this way. In the United States, you have these jobs programs for minority groups. You have these job retrainings and you have all this social welfare. I would almost say that if this same program was occurring in the United States, it would be heralded as a progressive achievement. Oh, yeah. No, seriously, they take every uh, everybody who showed up at the insurrection and then they just taught them that progressivism was great or something. We'd be clapping. <laughs> right. And, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so moreover, too, is, is that... Um, 
we have our own problems in our prison system here and people in the United States should be more concerned with that. You know, absolutely. Like that, that's really what I was trying to, that's what I was trying to get at when I said, um, before I couldn't finish the thought, but, uh, um, sorry, we're talking yeah. about, no, no, I just, I, I, I can't get my ideas enough quick enough or together quick enough. But, um, yeah, so I'm saying, yeah, if, if really that's what it boils down to is that it's a targeted prison system. Well, what does the U S really have to talk? Like, I guess China should invade us because right. we, we have a targeted prison system in this country. And we can do something about it here. Absolutely. We can't do anything about what the Chinese are doing over there. And and you want to talk about moral problems? We are complicit in aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen that's ha been happening for three or four years, maybe longer. The Barack Obama started this war in Yemen to, um, to uh, what what is the term, to appease the Saudis because the Saudis were pissed off that we overthrew Saddam Hussein. So he started a war of genocide in Yemen. And the reason why we're complicit in it is because we are blockading Yemen. We are refueling and providing spotting data for the uh, Saudi planes, which are American, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. And um, there, there are reports that 500,000 children are going to die. You know, check my numbers on that. But there are maybe a million people going to be dead in Yemen because of what we're doing there and what we're aiding the Saudis to do. So anyone who is outraged about this Chinese genocide or are saying that this is existing really needs to take a look in the mirror and focus on our own backyard first. Absolutely. A hey, shout out to Skinny Sultan. You heard him here first. Remember Yemen? <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's big on that one. Anyway. Hell yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a YouTube channel who does a, like Middle Eastern policy. So I had him on the show earlier. But um, I mean, Yemen, we, there's nothing much more to talk about that. It's like the biggest human rights tragedy in probably the world right now like we really yeah we we yeah. should not be looking in other people's backyard we should be looking in our own because we're doing a, a lot of crap right yeah. yeah and um so the i was talking about this yeah so the the birthing rates to this adrian zenz and he he has a lot of other issues i would encourage people to read uh gareth porter and max blumenthal's piece really kind of taking him to the woodshed on this um but what we know is happening in China is a horrible abuse of human rights, which is limiting the amount of children that people can have. And um, this is the one child policy has been pretty famous. Well, they realize that it's kind of like central planning doesn't work. And so they're realizing that they have like a demographic crisis on their hands uh, because they, they force people to have just one child for so long and this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not super concerned with China as a world power. Um, I think there are reasons to be concerned. Don't get me wrong. There are serious things to be concerned about with China. Oh, I got my concerns. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we can talk more about that. I'm, I'm not like, I don't see China like in the corner, you know, in the room with me right now. I don't see China. But there are things to be worried about, right? Um. But yeah, so we're talking about like a system of limiting the amount of children that families can have. And like monitoring menstrual cycles is a part of this. And I'm sure that forced abortions are a part of it. So, so China is not, you know, hunky dory, like city on a hill right here. Absolutely. But to be clear, uh, because that is one of the claims of what's going on in this, that's kind of happening across the board. Like that's right. happening to every citizen in China. So framing it in the way that this is a targeted population 
the one child policy affects everybody. And um, I did see, I did see by like some of the people didn't agree with the, uh, the uh, sentiment of your video. They were like, oh, so they get one more kid. I'm like, well, in a place that's a hellhole, and you only, most people only get two kids. They gave these guys three. It's a little bit of a suggestion that they have somewhat of a, uh, you know, it's a little nod to they're wanting to have more families. Like it's it's kind of an in-between with a totalitarian government. Like, Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I stated this clearly enough in, in the video, in the documentary, but the, the Uyghurs were exempted from the one child policy until a few years ago. And that's part of the reason why Adrian Zenz has his hands up in the air is because they go from having, in some cases, 13 children per family to being limited to three. And As I mean, that, to the yeah, Han that Chinese is, yeah. who can only have one. Yeah, I, I know. Now, right? they can, now they can have two because they, yeah, are yeah. walking it back. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I, I get why that, like, I get how somebody could come to the conclusion, oh, it's that much better. It's like, well, yeah, I guess if you're doing it to every one of your citizens, it's a little better. It's like, it's it's like, and I'm not. Well, it's certainly yeah. not genocide. Yeah, that's, that's the point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 more if it's if it's less it's slightly less genocide than your neighbor of a of not that culture, then I, I don't know. It's hard. It's like, yeah, like we can hate China for these reasons. Like the one child policy, that's that's pisses me off in its own. But if you're gonna act like it's worse to this one community, it's well, it's it's technically not. I don't know. Yeah, 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 no, and because they have a case, like I said, they have a case to make. And part of that case is showing that it is specifically targeted towards a certain ethnic group, you know? And so that element of the case or that piece of evidence that they put forward, that argument that they make to achieve that element is gone. Um, just, you know, on that demographic genocide targeted, like reproductive genocide type argument. Another thing I wanted to say before I forget, cause I'm trying to bring up things I haven't said in other interviews um, Thank you. <laughs> there, there was a petition. So when, when the UN, when the UN declared genis- that this genocide was occurring, I believe it was the UN. Uh, they had like 30 nations sign onto this declaration. Well, what they don't tell you is that there were 72 nations who signed on in defense of China's policy, and these were lots of Muslim nations. And so a big part of this is the Chinese one like Belt and Road Initiative in the fact that, you know, there are there are, a China wants to do this huge major infrastructure project running through the heart of the, of the Middle East. The last thing that they want to do is piss off a bunch a bunch of Muslims. Right. And a lot of the, the Muslim nations actually want this infrastructure project because it'd be a boon for their economies, theoretically. And um, so it just doesn't make any sense. All these Muslim nations signed on in defense of China and said, hey, we really appreciate this social project that you have and that it's empowering Muslims. So so that's another thing. And now, of course, all those other states have their motivations, but so do the 32 that signed accusing China. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, that's actually one of the things that people often bring up, though, is that um, they use it to the opposite side is they'll say, hey, they're trying to exterminate this Muslim population to make room for this Silk Road. You know, they're trying to, uh, they're like, Hey, we don't, we don't want to even chance like terrorist cells showing up. So we're going to just get rid of everybody off assumption. Like that's kind of the, uh, the lane they lean into with the, uh, opposite side of this. 
like in terms of make room like because Xinjiang is mostly a desert yeah I mean I guess just uh make sure that nobody's planning a 9-11 along the way of the road you know? oh like that well yeah. well yeah of course they're they are doing that but I think China has probably learned something from our terror, our war of terror across the world. And they know that they're, if they're going to exterminate a bunch of Muslims, they're probably going to get, you know, Islamic terror. And in fact, the, the main source of Uyghur Muslim terror, you can't talk about Uyghur Muslim terror without at least mentioning the United States involvement in that. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, you want to go into that a little, I know you, uh, talk about it in the uh, documentary, which really people check this out. Like, uh, I mean, a pause, pause this podcast and go watch that and come back with fresh ears. Like, yeah, because uh, so I'm, I'm not going through and like specifically debunking everything I've been trying to, but, um, you know, it's all pretty much in the documentary or in these, uh, the citations that I provide in the, in the article, like the more specifics of the Adrian Zen's, um, so basically the United States has, has been involved with the Uyghur Muslims since at least. And in this this Italian policy report I mentioned earlier actually has a wonderful backdrop backdrop to it, uh, explaining everything about the Xinjiang region, its history back to antiquity, talking about the like um, it joining, splitting from China and rejoining China, and the origins of the Uyghur terrorist movement and the the separatists like the the nationalists. And uh, it's it's super interesting, but at least as far back as I go in the documentary is to say that Eric Margulies was an embedded reporter in Afghanistan, and he was there before 9-11. And while he was there, the CIA through third parties was aiding people like the ISI, the Pakistani ISI, and Osama bin Laden, and there were terrorist training camps. And Eric Margulies said that when he was there, and now I do a lot of debunking of eyewitness testimony, so take this for what it is, right? He says that he saw one of the big groups that were there were these Uyghur Muslims and that they were being trained there by Osama bin Laden and the Pakistani ISI to go back to Xinjiang and basically to stir up a lot of trouble. So more recently, it is widely known, even in neocon circles, that there were a lot of Uyghur terrorists that were fighting in Syria on behalf of of Al Qaeda, and and the Islamic terrorists that were fighting against the the Assad regime, and it is rumored, at least, that uh, Erdogan in Turkey had aided them in their journey and perhaps had provided them with like, you know, weapons and training. And our source for this is Colonel Larry Wilkerson. Um, more specifically, because he's citing a bunch of neocon think tanks and all these other policy reports. This is not controversial, is what I'm trying to say. And Wilkerson said that as recently, I think, as April, that he's been hearing in intelligence circles and amongst his, um, you know, people that he knows that those those Uyghur terrorists are headed back home from Syria that they're being aided in their journey through Afghanistan. And he said basically that they're not going back to Afghanistan to bake cake. And so I can only, this is like, I can't prove to you that the United States is involved right now with Uyghur Muslims going back, Uyghur terrorists going back to Xinjiang. But I'm saying that that track record has existed. And I don't know if there's any way that I could actually prove that's happening right now, but it's, it's a major reason to be skeptical. And this is one of the arguments I, I was hearing uh, from the non-receptive people. They, um, 
oh, so the U.S. has done this before, so you just assume they're doing it again? Well, personally, I think they have a pretty shitty track record. And the way I see it, what we're saying here is, all right, so you know a guy beats up his girlfriend. You know for a fact. Cops have come. It's all over the local news. Now, this guy is the guy telling you he's not beating up his girlfriend. Maybe he isn't. Maybe he's had a change of heart. Maybe he figured it out. But you should really take the context of this guy has done it. And in this context, he would be lying about it, that it never happened. And you have somewhat proof that it's happened before. You got police reports or something, you know? So it's yeah. it's really just like, which source are you going to trust? And by trust, I mean, just remain skeptical is really the, the real answer to all of this. Just be, wor be worried that uh, this could all just be wartime propaganda. And it, it, it might just be dehumanizing the enemy. It's still not great, even if it's even if it's to the the level we're talking about. It's still them trying to beat a culture out of people and possibly through a lot more forceful measures. But there's a big difference between that and a literal genocidal Holocaust. Right. And so I'm looking at the uh, I like I said, I'm a lawyer by training. So I'm looking at federal rule of evidence 404. And there's exceptions like generally you can't introduce evidence of a person's character trait um, to prove that on a particular occasion, the person acted in accordance with that character trait, right? So if you're trying to accuse someone of being a thief, you can't introduce other like things of untrustworthiness to say that he was a thief, right? Absolutely. Um, so permitted uses is other crimes, wrongs, or acts can be used uh, for another purpose, such as proving motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake, or lack of accident. So there are reasons, and I would argue, you know, that it would be admissible in court for certain purposes to, to point out exactly all these regime change operations that the United States has been involved in. Yeah. So if people care about that. <laughs> I really like the angle you take it from, though, with that, like, literally approach, like, hey, this is what we're supposed to believe in America. Let's yeah, let's put well, it through that system. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you're doing something so controversial, you you have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know, we're we're trying to approach this as fair as possible. And I mean, really, I just I don't understand the people who get hostile towards this take because it's just like, or I, I mean, most of the people. Most of the people I've talked to, eventually, if we've talked it out, it's been like, oh, hey, it's okay. Well, if you're just saying be skeptical, fine. But if they approach this as like the claim that you're denying any of this is happening, very upsetting. It's just moves quick. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, you know, I have denied that it's happening before. I can't say for certain, I guess, but I could say most likely not. And certainly, even if it was happening, I still would argue very, very intensely that we should have nothing to do with it. Oh, that absolutely. I'm, I, I move towards the isolationist, uh, or actually, I don't like that word, non-interventionalist uh, yeah. mindset. Because, I mean, it's not about isolating yourself. It's about not getting involved, I, I mean, un until you have the full facts. And I mean... Eventually, in my perfect world, there's no borders, and that's just one shitty community that we maybe should go fucking check on. <laughs> but, uh, right. I mean, that goes into the war aspect. But I'm just saying, like, you know. It, <laughs> well, maybe not do business with. Maybe you know. not do business with. There you go. Tell, just, tell people about it. 
So yeah. they can't do business with them either. But, or, you know, other things. To something you've said, I've seen this point, though, cutting off resources, soldiers move across borders. Yeah, yeah, I have made that point. Um, so I, I don't know what you do in, like, an ANCAP situation. I've been trying to, like stay away from the theoretical and focus on the practical. Absolutely. Now, and in this case, I, I have had people make the evidence or make the case with me that, you know, at this point it would be immoral to trade with China. And um, I, I totally and completely disagree because one, what is China, right? Does China really exist? Are we talking about the people inside China? Are we talking about individuals? You know, I don't want to threaten regular you know, Joe, Chinese person uh, who has a farm who's growing goods to feed his family, you know, yeah, I'll, farmer I'll, buy Joe Chinese. <laughs> I'll buy his goods if, if I determine based off the money that I have in my pocket, you know, if I prefer to have that good over another good. Um, so I guess my general point is, is that sanctions don't hurt the government. They don't hurt the people perpetrating this. Sanctions hurt regular people in China, regular Chinese people. And, um, you know, you see this exactly when when they try to sanction Iran to say that they have nuclear missiles and that they should stop work. Well, to say that they have a nuclear program they should stop working on, which they have never had nuclear missiles or that capability. But, um, you know, they'll they'll advocate sanctions on that country to starve out the people in the hopes that the people will overthrow uh, the Ayatollah. You know, that's wrong <laughs> because the people just get more pissed off at it. Well, firstly, you kill people and you like decrease their way of standard of living, but they just, it doesn't work practically. They, they just get pissed off and they get more entrenched and they hate the United States even more. So it's like, what, what are you trying to accomplish here? I don't think of it on the other side. Like we, uh, so we have our prison system, we have our problems and stuff. So sanctions against us, um, you know, just it, just anything, anything they could do, like vice versa from uh, making the, the same claims against us because we do have our problems. How do you think the average American citizen would feel? Do they feel attacked? Do they feel, hey, steel prices just went up angry. Like, you know, like you're, you're really you're radicalizing people against you when you do these kind of things. Right. Yeah. And but unfortunately, just the, the argument that has more credence with people is to blame the other, you know, to. Like, like, so Scott Horton was on Tim Pool's show and noticed that Scott, uh, Tim and Scott got into it on China. And I think Scott was making a whole lot of sense. And it was clear to Tim that Scott actually kind of knew what he was talking about. And notice how Tim really changed the subject very quickly. Wait, 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 wait. Scott was on benign. Tim Pool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and he got into, oh, wow, I got to go see that. He, he, I was, so when this was happening, it was after... I didn't make my video documentary yet, but I had written my article and I was watching it like pacing around my kitchen, gnashing my teeth, hoping that they would get into it. Uh, the Uyghur thing didn't come up because we didn't even get into the Falun Gong part of this yet. Um, oh, I know. I can't wait for that part. <laughs> but I, I was just, you know, I, I wanted it to come up because I wanted to, you know, have Tim Pool be confronted on this issue. And who wouldn't? I, I'm waiting for that. I can't even believe Scott got on there and it didn't happen. Like, I'm I'm a little mad. <laughs> I, you know, I think Scott's the type of person where he's like, hey, man, you know, Scott's really cool. He's just he, he's yeah. a skater, man. You know, he's like, hey, you yeah, know, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. 
And he knows um, how to he knows how to read a room too really well. Like I was just uh, just hearing about him showing up in uh, you know full suit and tie, looking all good because he knows his audience at the time. But then we all know him as skater, chill, freaking you know, puff pass. Yeah. You know, I don't know, cool guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I mean, that's that's yeah. So. I forgot what I was talking about. Uh, you but, were talking about yeah, Scott but, Horton on the show and then it didn't come up. Oh yeah. He was yeah. on, he was on the show and he was talking, you know, and China came up and Scott was making some really common sense points. And people in the chat were calling him an, a Chinese agent and, um, you know, but, but Tim just didn't have any, you know, I think he quickly realized he was out of his element. So he changed the subject and they talked about COVID-19 for the rest of the show. Because you're not going to truth bomb anybody in five freaking seconds. I, I actually had a hard time with this. I literally, I was, um, I I was uh, working with a customer and I saw that they had a uh, Yomi Park on their phone and I was like, I was a like, Joe Rogan Yomi Park and I just like real quick and passing. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, I heard some things that might be exaggerated and like, uh, and I'm like, this is not, this is not the time. This is, I'm not going to truth bomb somebody <laughs> in a two minute discussion. I was like, maybe like. Look into it. <laughs> well, well, let's piss off, you know, a bunch of Mises Caucus libertarian types. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, shit. Part, part of the issue, ha you know, and I, I'm, I've been very friendly to the Mises Caucus. I, I like them a lot. Um, I, I've been a member of the Mises Caucus, but it, it's just the Mises Caucus Facebook group really idolizes people on the intellectual dark web, like, um, you know, Tim Pool and... Not Rogan so much, but like Jordan Peterson and Lex Friedman and Michael Malice. Those are people that have, you know, they get very upset when you criticize Yanomi Park specifically. Really? Like, what do you, because I'm a huge Michael Malice fan. I don't have any problem with this. Like, I mean, all the other people that seem like, because I haven't seen Michael Malice, has, has he had her on? Yeah. Yeah. He did have her on. Wow. More, more Michael, over I am surprised. <laughs> uh, Moreover than that, Michael, or, uh, Malice has, in effect, there was an episode of the, the Tom Woods show where he advocated for invading North Korea to, to uh, basically, you know, free the North Koreans. And he's really bad on Palestine, too. Very bad. Like, Israel has a right to defend itself. Wow. I, I haven't heard these. Uh, these are all Malice takes, you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I... I uh... I haven't heard any of those. Uh, I think he was on Dave Rubin in a bodysuit when he said that Israel has a right to defend itself. So everyone look into that. Maybe he was trolling. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That doesn't seem very malice to me. I mean, then again, yeah, he's operating I, on the information he has. I mean, he hasn't heard your side to it. And the thing is, it's such an easy stance to take. Like, like I said, from the perspective you're coming from, that's what really triggered me to like be more receptive to this information. I... I mean, I told you, I, should, I found you on Pete Quinones and stuff, and this is somebody Pete wants to have on. I'm like, okay, this guy's legit. Like, this guy's, this guy's not some China stan. Like, he's, he's, he's really thought about these arguments and stuff. He's coming from the polar opposite, essentially, uh, viewpoint. So I, I can kind of hear this guy out and under, understand what he's saying because you have no reason that you would want to align with them so when someone like michael malice does it i'm like well that's coming from the point of view of he has no reason to want to side with these people like i totally get that sentiment and you could yeah. easily miss this and the thing is 
if they're really doing a Holocaust and all this, well, that's not North Korea, but he's talking about North Korea invading them. But I mean, if right. like, that's really like what's going on, yeah, there's some justifiable like things. Like there's some justifiable reasons to like, we're like Pete always says, we're not living in Ancapistan, so we can't treat it like it's that right now in the practical situation. Like, yeah, that'd be a reason to really want to go in and free some people. But if it's not what's happening, well, we need to find that out first, you know? Well, I mean, if if ever there was a population that was in need of being freed, it would maybe be the North Koreans, you know, 100%. or maybe the Yemenis. But, oh. you know, we we all know yeah. where that leads. Right. I mean, everyone likes all the neocons will like to say that the Korean War was a successful like humanitarian intervention. Like, look, we had South Korea uh, that came to pass. But what they don't mention is that the absolute destruction and mass killing orgy that occurred in Korea during the Korean War. We dropped more ordinance in in the Korean War on Korea than was dropped in the entire Pacific Theater in World War II. Just you to uh, invoke the words of, uh, I forget his name, Hank Hill's dad. <laughs> no, Hank Hill's dad. I killed 50 men. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, you thought I was yeah. going with a decent, uh, a decent take. No, I'm going with a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, you know, uh, King of the Hill is really good, so it's fine. Yeah, no, but, honestly, but I yeah, love Mike I mean, Judge. Separate story. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, that's um, so they don't mention that, you know. And I'll, I'd be the type of person who'd say that World War II was not justified. You know that our involvement in World War II should never have happened. And I'm not gonna. I mean, if if you want to read Pat Buchanan's book, uh, I think it was called Winston, like Churchill, FDR, and the Unnecessary War. There's a lot of things that are left out of that. Like, I mean, the fact that Churchill and FDR conspired with each other to get the U.S. into war and that Churchill, when war happened, he, he went in front of parliament and was saying that, like, this is the goal I've striven towards for over a decade was to get us into this war. So, yeah, you know, and, and, then and you also coming from the Pearl context, Harbor. coming from the context, I'm saying of when we got into World War II. We did not know there was a Holocaust going on. So a Holocaust right. is a justifiable event. Like at that point, if we knew that, that would be worth going going into it for. However, when we got involved in World War II, that was absolutely not known. That was something we arrived upon later. Well, I, d I don't agree that a Holocaust is a justifiable reason to get involved in a war. Okay. I don't agree with that. But um, I think we did know some things about it. I think we, we did. did. We did know some yeah. stuff about it. I don't know exactly when, but I know I've looked into this, but the scope of the of the Holocaust was known in some intelligence circles for a while. I, I don't know if it was from like 1942 or 1943, um, but certain people knew about it. Yeah. I mean, I get to the point where I completely view that as justifiable if we knew it was going on. Uh, my, my understanding was we didn't know, and that was uh, something we arrived at later. But, I mean, intelligence gathering has been around forever. We probably did know somewhat. Mm. Um, so where do you come uh, – where do you stand on that? I'm, I'm just interested by that take. Like, uh, this, might, this might be hard to explain in, like, a short period, but – you, uh, you don't think that's enough of a reason? Because, like, I don't know when I'd go to war, but I do think at a certain point, like – what do you what do you do about a Holocaust? Like if you knew there was a Holocaust going on, like say say right. this China stuff is real. What do what what is your take? What do we do? So I mean, I I really don't want to go with like the um, the ends like like I don't want to go with the utilitarian argument, but you could say the result of us 
getting involved could end up with untold suffering that we don't even know how bad the suffering could be. And you don't even know how bad the skill of the genocide would be. So you, you really are dealing with variables that you don't know about. I'm not going to sit here and say that like, well, we have to weigh what result ends with the least amount of deaths. You know, certainly that could be a cogent argument, but I have, I'm principled. I like to, you know, say that I have principles. I think I do have principles, but part of that principle is that if you are an anarchist, and I believe that is the only like logically consistent position to hold, you know that how is this war getting paid for, practically speaking, right? Not only how is this war getting paid for, but I don't believe that a young man can sign up for a war voluntarily even, not to mention the draft, which is literal slavery, literal slavery. Agreed. But a young, a young man can't sign up for a war and know what they're getting into. I don't think anyone who hasn't already been in a war can sign up for a war and know what they're getting into. So if you're taking it from that angle, um, A, like the, you're, okay, you're going to kill civilians on the other side. It's going to happen. Um, you're going to kill all the other people who are, you know, maybe perpetrating the genocide, but I guarantee you not everyone's in on it. You know, they are brainwashed too. And um, like the whole Jordan Peterson uh, take on, uh, you know, most of us would probably have been on board with uh, Nazism, right? given living yeah. there. And it, it and it's true, man. I'm sorry. But like, I see people everywhere. Like, it, so, it sounds gross. Like, I'd be on the side of the, 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 the Nazis. It's like, if you were there, probably most of us yeah. are fucking sheep. Right. Or at the very least, you'd be in the Wehrmacht, which, you know, these are people who weren't died in the wool SS. You know, they were a lot of them just wanted to protect their homeland. You know, it they were they were driven by very base, like for my community, you know, while everyone else is joining up, I might as well join up too, kind of things like peer pressure stuff. But yeah, so I mean, war war is bad for for many different reasons. And and I would, you know, argue it breaks principle, but uh from a utilitarian standpoint, the result of World War II was a lot worse than the Holocaust, you know. For the people of Europe, um, of course, you you add, you know, and the, the number six million, some people dispute that number. That's the widely accepted number. I believe that number comes from like one study. It's now um, up to uh, 13, though. It's up to 13 million. Yeah, that's that's. Like, are the, you including people in Ukraine? I don't know. That's the, that's the highest number I've seen reported. I just saw that uh, a couple of years ago. I actually I got into uh really a tiff i was just on a work site with a holocaust and iron i'm like let me make sure this guy's insane which he was but um you know just i hear something and i'm like well i gotta go check like, right yeah okay well i mean what, whatever number it is you know yeah. i i don't know what the american casualties are in world war ii offhand i'm sure we could look that up right now but well, I, yeah. what i'm saying ultimately is that the numbers don't matter what you're doing is you're perpetrating a cycle of, of breaking, of being immoral is like, no matter what you do, you're going to have people who like the, the, the government is going to tax people, which creates unmeasurable effects on the economy. It's morally wrong to tax people, especially to support killing. You're going to have to conscript people if it gets worse, you know, bad enough. Um, you're going to send young men who don't know what they're getting into 
over to kill other young men and to die and be maimed and to have moral injury and to get PTSD. So, I mean, there's all these things. The state shouldn't exist, right? But war is the health of the state because it is measurable that when the state grows the most is during wartime. So you have all these different things that come together, all the reasons why we're against war to begin with, which says that we should not intervene in that situation. Now, certainly I can feel really bad and I can really hate the Nazis for doing what they did, you know, but I wouldn't send or ask other young men to go die and kill to do that. Now, in an Ancapistan situation, and you have a privately funded army of all volunteers who might want to go in and disrupt operations, I don't know if I'd have any problem with that. Absolutely. So I, I guess to summarize your argument, um, Holocaust, bad, World War worse. Like, you know, right. yeah, yeah. That, and I, I guess that's a, that's a fair take. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it sounds it sounds gross to a lot of people of like, how, what? You don't want to stop the Holocaust. It's like, well, I guess of we can put it in that con- Yeah, of course we want to stop the Holocaust. It's just, is war the means of doing it? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it almost seems like, I get it too. Like, there's almost like, what reactionary force could you do in like a short time? But additionally, if you look at how the Holocaust was going, uh, they ramped it up when they were losing. Right. Like they, they doubled yeah. down. Like literally the pressure was on from that point. And it, and it did it. Even then it, it led to a ramp up in the Holocaust to uh, essentially finish the job. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I mean, it did put the pressure on and made it worse. And uh, who knows how bad it would have been before that because it didn't get to the level it was until there was all this military involvement of intervention. You know, and another thing that's left out too is that we turned away Jews who were fleeing Europe. We did. Yeah, when they were yeah. coming, I'm pretty sure. I would fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure that we turned away lots of Jews who were fleeing Europe. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I ran. I ran out of batteries here. Oh, that camera's done, though. Yeah. Here, do you want to pause for a second? Set back up, or? Yeah, it's all good. I can keep talking. Okay. Unless you'd rather pause. Yeah, I'll just let you get set up, just so you're not distracted. All right. His camera died. Uh, it's a great camera, by the way. I mean, uh, go check out his show. It's it's, it's some high quality stuff. Better than you're getting on this uh, webcam and. And, uh, seeing the video, so uh, I just I just like paused for a second there. And screwed up. You're already back. You know what? Screw it. We're still going. Yeah, I just, well, no worries. That's three percent battery right there. So, yeah. Wait, is this the same camera? Yeah. All right. Who cares? That's shop talk. Anyway. Um. Yeah. So I mean. Um. All right. Wait. You know what? Tell you what. It's throwing me off. We're gonna take a quick second. Fix your camera, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back after the technical difficulties. You know this brand, you know this show, that's what we do. <laughs> but um, anyway, Pat, you were just talking about uh, the World War II, and specifically, we, we just want to frame this, we're not going into Holocaust denial. That's not what's happening here. We just had that little conversation off air. Feels like we're getting the, somewhat the air of that. That's not what's going on. We're talking about war being a worse answer to a genocide. I mean, we didn't Invade Rwanda. I don't know. Like, like some. It, it, there's a lot of other background. Um, actually, I don't know what we did in Rwanda. I can't fucking say anything to that. I'm not gonna act like I know. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. I. I mean, I was just gonna say it's like you know. I guess the people who hate me already hate me because of the whole Uyghur thing. So yeah. I mean the 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 World War II United States being the hero good guy thing is is one of the most ingrained like 
things in the United States. It's like we've been taught since we were very small children that this is what happened. So I can understand people like even libertarian and cap like anarchist people really getting uncomfortable with someone saying that we should not have fought World War II uh, because the Holocaust always comes up. But, you know, I I feel like I feel pretty justified in saying that World War II was worse than the Holocaust. So if people want to get mad about that, I guess they can. But there's a lot more context missing and a lot more lies that we were told or omissions that happened about the background of that war. And none of that takes away from the fact that Holocaust was a horrible Holocaust, thing. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's that just it bad. That it was horrible. The response might have been worse. It's uh yeah. it's hard to say, but it's hard to it's hard to solve any of these sticky situations, you know? It's it's really it's it's complicated stuff. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, people want a right answer. People want that justifiable American freaking answer. Like, yeah, Holocaust bad, U.S. invade, we won, freedom, something, flag, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's not that simple. The, the other thing about this, man, is there's so many immeasurable, like, so Frederick Bastiat talked about this, the seen and the unseen, right? The what you see is the war you see the United States like triumphing and succeeding and liberating the concentration camps. But there is an entire hidden cost that you don't see about the war. You don't see the loss of Liberty. You don't see all the veterans who had moral injury, who went home and drank themselves to death or beat their wives or their children. And I mean, all of those ripples ripple across and have an effect that is immeasurable. So Yes, Holocaust, very, very, very bad, but World War II, worse. Absolutely. Okay. I still meet and victims of that. I still meet victims of what you're talking about. I meet, really? I meet boomers whose parents beat the freaking living hell out of them and instilled the worst values in them from coming back traumatized. Yeah. So you can still see it affecting today. So, I, yeah, I, yeah, I kind of see what you're saying in that sense. It's, uh, yeah. And that's immeasurable, you know, and you can't see it either. So people... You know, people don't know or think about that when they do this whole cost benefit analysis, which they shouldn't do anyways, because, again, on a fundamental like a level of having principles, a principled level, war is is not justifiable. Now, maybe it would be from a mask. I'm still piecing this out, but maybe it would be in a purely defensive situation is like my state or my county is being invaded by an outside source and I'm going to take up arms to defend my family and my land, you know? But it's never as clear-cut as that. Almost never. So this leads me into maybe the topic I wanted to close on because this is something I'm going to be specializing in in my uh, kind of my career, probably for the next couple of years, be like a, a, a shtick of mine, is this discussion of moral injury. And what I'm really trying to do is to say that the amount of moral, so first I should define moral injury is that there's this concept in like veteran circles and like combat psychology, that moral injury is a wound. It can wound a soldier and it's something distinctly different from PTSD. PTSD is more of a physiological condition where your uh, fight or flight response gets triggered by um, by things that are benign. So like a soldier, you know, well, he'll be in an IED explosion. And when he comes back home, he'll get PTSD when a firecracker goes off because his, his adrenaline will be kicked in uncontrollably. And he'll have that fight or flight response to something that isn't, you know, a real emergency situation. 
Now, moral injury can also coexist with PTSD, and often it does. But moral injury is something where every everyone has this like they they have a narrative that they tell about themselves and that they know about the world. And that is is that you know at least in the West, we believe, generally speaking, that we're a good person. There are exceptions, but we also believe that the world is generally good where good things are supposed to happen to people, right? We have this, and there are exceptions, of course, there's nihilists and other bad, 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 baddy people, but we have this conception. And when things, good things like that don't happen, we get what's called moral injury. So if we have to do terrible things, we try to fit the you know square peg into the round hole and try and figure out well if i must because i did that bad thing i must not be a good person so to try and circle that square or to allow a buddy to die or to perceive that you allowed a buddy to die or witnessing horrible atrocities happen and failing to present them or feeling complicit in them in some way produces moral injury so my thesis basically is is that if we look at the amount of moral injury that exists in whoever perpetrated or participates in a certain conflict, can we use that to argue that the conflict itself is immoral? Now, I don't, I'm still looking into that and I don't know for sure whether I can justify that claim, but one thing is certain is that the terror wars have produced mortal injury on a scale that we've never seen before. And that could be because we have no concept of moral injury previously or that we didn't study it closely enough, but it was always there. Um, but there's evidence that suggests otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, uh, just coming from, uh, I'll give you my perspective. Uh, I pretty sure from your show, you never, never served, right? No, no, I haven't. Absolutely. Nope. I did. I did. Um, and, uh, you did. Okay. Yeah, I did serve. I was, uh, I was in the air force and this is, uh, this is something I often don't like cause I've arrived at this conclusion from a, a much safer spot. Like I appreciate a lot of the people you have on your show who have been in like serious conflict and are able to come out on the other side and realize this moral injury, like recognize it for what it is. I kind of felt it throughout my military career. I was specifically mm-hmm. fighting the war on drugs, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I did it from a chair. And, uh, one day, um, a guy who I was in with, he, uh, he, he pointed out to me and, uh, I mean, this is, I don't, I don't really fault him for this. I know him. He was my roommate and stuff. And so I know him in a lot larger context, but in the childish 20 year old, you don't really know what's going on way. He pointed out to me, he goes, Hey bro, what's your kill streak? And uh, yeah, I know, and it's it's gross. I I know this. I know no, this guy no, much better than that. But it's like from I, a young, am, how detached right. you are relationship right. with this thing. Like you're doing things on a computer. And he points out to me. He goes, "Well, look at these reports." He goes, "Yeah, I mean, uh, they." Um, he goes, "Yeah." So he sees like four thousand dollars worth of cocaine. Uh, blah blah blah. Two vehicles seized. Right. We got a we got a boat and a truck here from something. Right. He goes, "Well, who do you think was driving them?" Right. And I'm like. Oh yeah. He goes, yeah, zero arrests. I mean, they must've died. And I was like, oh, okay. So like that put it in context and didn't put in enough context to where like I was always from the perspective being in the, in the military. I'm like, 
yeah, I'm uh, and this this is one of the guys talked about this. Like he has Air Force guys specifically defending this kind of stuff. You really get to look at it and in the most Air Force sense, top down, you know, you like, really yeah. just see it from such a distance. Like I'm on a computer typing a few things out as a cog in a machine and I'm able to just, I guess, smarter guy than me. Honestly, I'd like him to arrive. I don't, I don't know what his take is, but to, to be bragging about a kill streak. Uh, I mean, he probably had his own thing in his head. I mean, like really, I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk the line of, I guess, defending this guy's childish take, but, no, um, no, like- yeah. Let, let me say a few things, though. Um, I'm not here to judge individual soldiers or members of the military who me did either. things. Yeah. You know, I, I am not. I and maybe you can tell me if I can do this or not, but I'm trying to generally make statements and statements like that. If you are an aggressor in an unjust war, right? You probably heard me say this on the other podcast. If you're an aggressor in an unjust war, Killing the enemy is morally wrong. Yeah. And uh, I there's this piece, Killing in War by Jeff McMahon, that I've been reading. Um, and I think he makes a, a very convincing case of that statement. But let me emphatically say I'm not here to judge individuals. And, and when your friend said something like that, I mean, there's a lot of dark humor that people employ to cope with things. Exactly. And I think he yeah. was much more aware than I was at the time. And that is exactly the direction he'd go in is the dark humor of it all. Right. Like yeah. he got out, he got out before me and I think he got out because deep down he didn't like what he was doing. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. And I mean, dude dealing with his demons. I don't know. He's, he's got his yeah. own thing, but to point it out to me, like I was unaware. I'm, I'm literally sitting in an office somewhere in Arizona, just like, boy, do I make a lot of money? Type, type, type. <laughs> just like but like realizing it later on and even when i came back i wasn't to this realization man i was like a i was like a kind of like a trump guy in like 2016 like you said the height of the culture war is what piqued my interest 2015 100 that is when i became involved in politics i'm like well this shit looks crazy and it took me a long time to kind of put it into a worldview that makes sense i actually for the first time which it's not a great test doesn't tell everything about you but i moved on the political compass test for the first time mm -hmm. and all it's shown is i've i've gotten a lot more radical in my position i got more right wing and i got more anarchist or you know libertarian or whatever you want to call it i got i got less authoritarian and i feel like it's because funny enough this pandemic lockdown i spent I, I was one of the recipients of doing nothing and uh, i spent quite a bit of time uh at home making more money than ever and it got me the time to think and i really assessed these ideas and i was like holy shit man i have been wrapped up in and even when i was in i, I like when i was wrapped up in it i was like well i do drugs so like my mom used to make the joke, he goes, oh, you're fighting the war on drugs on drugs. And like, <laughs> like, yeah, a little bit. But uh, it felt like immoral to me then. But I always would tell myself like, well, but the terrorists, you know, like the real wars, like those are the important ones. Like I get it. Some people think that drugs are bad. And like, that's always the perspective I've come from. But a hundred percent, I mean, like, you know, I'm sipping right now. Uh, I don't know. I, it's a little bit compulsive. I, I don't know what it comes from because I was doing it a little bit before, but I got into it then. And I'll blame bad girlfriends and other reactions. But I think deep down, some part of it was I hated what I was doing. Yeah. And I yeah. just kind of dealt with it. And, and I really just hate that. Like a lot of people who defend this stuff will be like, do you see action? Well, then you don't get to talk. And I'm like, 
your PTSD is not a qualifier, man. I mean, it, it, if you if you didn't fall in the right direction and you just ended up hating people who look different than you, I, I don't think that's really a qualifier. It's, um, yeah, I, I think I took a little moral injury that took some time to set in. Like maybe yeah. I didn't know it right away, but I think deep down my subconscious knew what I was doing was fucked up. That's kind of how it works, man. I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like I, yeah. I've been doing a fair amount of reading on this and a lot of it, uh, consists of case studies, you know, uh, not from a clinical point of view, but from like a pop, you know, nonfiction kind of view. And, uh, yeah, it's like people, you know, they, so there was a story about a soldier in Fallujah in the second battle of Fallujah. And he, I don't know if he killed a child or he did something like that. And he soon after was on a video interview and you can see him going through all the stages of what Dave Grossman documents in this book, kill uh, on killing. Uh, you know, first it was euphoria, and then it was like kind of disgust, and then it was taking that and putting it deep down deep to get through whatever else you had to get through. Yeah. And then two or three three years later, once you're out, you know, then it sits back there and it starts coming back up, and you think about it and you think about it and you know, this, this kid ended up, you know, he, I don't know if he killed himself or he OD'd on drugs or something like that, you know? So it's, it, it's serious. It's very serious. And, um, maybe, I, I don't know how you're doing now. I hope you're doing good. Um, like I just told you earlier, I think, uh, I, I think a small argument about you're not living your libertarian values. If you're, uh, just junking yourself out constantly, uh, has been a good <laughs> argument towards me think like that i guess i needed a logical approach i'm still drinking today mm -hmm. um maybe soon to be quitting I, I i don't know but uh yeah right now it's a crutch and uh i'm working on it but it uh it puts in a little more perspective you know it's like yeah. it's it's yeah no stuff like your work's very important it uh yeah well i i appreciate it i and i was gonna say you know maybe reading those books would help you out a bit like in yeah. in I haven't had to deal with moral injury like that, but, um, you know, I've certainly used crutches in my past too, you know, yeah. uh, maybe still do sometimes, but try to keep it like, you know, in moderation. Yeah. I mean, you see me, I'm talking about it. I'm reaching for it right now on camera. Oh, uh, you know, I've, uh, yeah, I know. It, it, you know what? It's not, I'm right between like, Hey, if I want to live my libertarian values, I need to stop drinking today, but that's also a tomorrow <laughs> problem. <laughs> Well, you know, I would be I would be one to argue that this is a whole like another subject, but I'd be one to argue basically that all libertarianism really is is believing in the non-aggression principle and private property. I feel so that if you believe in that, then you're a libertarian. Yeah. So take that, all you uh, fakeitarians and whatever the else they call you. If you believe in the NAP, I pretty much agree. You're in the direction of being on the right side of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know you could. You could be a libertarian and have other beliefs too, like, I don't know, prefer the nuclear family or prefer, you know, like low time preference. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I'm talking about with this drinking thing. Yeah. That was the time preference argument is what. So it's put me there. I'm like, yeah. so do you really believe in libertarianism if you are drinking yourself into an early grave or do you actually want to see change for the world around you? You should probably be extending your life as far as possible and, and making the arguments as long as possible. Yeah, I agree. Yeah buying capital or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I, I just made some tweet about that earlier today of, uh, make that fucking money, make that fucking change. Like, seriously, you're not going to do shit while you're poor. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, there that caused a pretty big stir in the libertarian community. You know, I don't know. It might have got me sober in the long run. It's worth it. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I'm just I don't know. I just try and focus on what I do and in my family and stuff like that. And that's really the core of like libertarianism. I mean, like yeah. at the end of things, I mean, we're not going full like uh, Kaczynski or whatever. We're not locking ourselves in the woods or whatever. But yeah. really, do we not want to create a world that is better suited for our children, like some, some, something better to offer them than what we had. Because I feel mostly the world is moving in a better direction. I feel like we're not dealing with, like, what's uh, what's his name? I forget that guy. Uh, the dude with the book who's, uh, <laughs> the dude with the book, the dude with the book who says, uh, I don't know, things have been getting progressively better. I, I, I can't think of his name. But like over time, he just maps it out. Like, I mean, there's less starvation, there's less... There's less war. Uh, I mean, it's still so going well. On. Did so well do something on that? Um, no, no, this is a newer guy. This is uh, someone who was just on Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't know. Oh. I'm, I can't remember the name. I don't know. Um, anyway, it's just I, things are getting better, but they're only getting better by the people who are trying to make them better. So I'd like to be on the side of the people who are trying to make things better. Yeah. Well, see, and that's why people say like, oh, why would you bring kids into this terrible, awful world? It's like, well, I, I don't know, man. Like someone has to raise good kids. Yeah, exactly. Like, seriously, it's like, what are, what are the only kids that are going to be left is like the uh, products of uh, nihilistic people who were just like, I want a nut. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, no, like seriously, like put a few good ones out into the world. Like, hey, kid, maybe get better i don't know <laughs> right yeah hey, don't be a shithead when yeah. you grow up that's the best advice i can give you son so. seriously like ser put a few good ones out there yeah well i think we put a few good ones out there tonight um obviously there's a lot more we can get into but sure. uh respectful of the time i'm gonna close it down here so anything you want to plug real quick yeah yeah well i would you know I'm sure if you've made it this far, maybe you're more receptive to the arguments that I've made. But if you are still listening and you hate my guts, check out my works, uh, look at my sources, go and do a deep dive and tell me why I'm wrong. I really would appreciate that. And But don't be a dick about it, man. It's like I'm just trying to figure out what's true and what's not. So I don't have all the answers. I did the best I could. Um, you know, if you're mad about the World War II stuff, I, I don't know what to tell you. So um on the other hand, you can check out my work at libertyweekly.net. That's kind of your one-stop shop. Or you can find me at libertarianinstitute.org forward slash Patrick. I just did a really long interview with my buddy Scott, who is a two-time Iraq and two-time Afghanistan vet. Um, he was in the second battle of Fallujah, and we just had a two-and-a-half-hour long like historical talk where he told his whole story of his first deployment. So we're going to do all four of his deployments in a series and um, I, I would check that one out. Absolutely. I checked out the first part. The first part was great. Um, yeah. So, I mean, go check the boy out. Everything's going to be in the show notes. We're going to, um, I need your link for all those resources too. We'll yeah. get that. But uh, yeah, check that out, guys. I mean, seriously, all we're trying to offer here, a little skepticism. Don't take the narrative for what it is. And I think that's a good place to leave off on. So, tell you what, folks, good night.